I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. I'm Brian Moore and joining me in the studio today is Saracens and former Scotland lock, Jim Hamilton. You and Jim, um, joining the show today, we'll be hearing from Scott Hastings, Paul Wallace, Kevin Brown and getting a Super Rugby update from Nigel Yolden. Plus, top international referee Nigel Owens will be joining us to answer any of your questions from the weekend's action and I can confidently predict that there'll be a lot of questions from England fans as to what is a tackle and what is a rook because they didn't understand and neither did most of the England players as far as I could see. Remember, you can ask questions throughout the week using the hashtag FullContact and every week you can join us on Facebook Live at 6pm. Just search for Telegraph Sport and you can listen to the whole show live on the Telegraph website. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and please leave a review. Right, on with the show. Jim, uh, third round of the Six Nations, and well, it was different. Shall we say? Tell, I tell you what, let's start with the less problematic, and probably right down your street, which was Scotland's deserved, uh, thoroughly deserved win against uh, Wales. Did you imagine what? How do you think it would play out before you saw the way Scotland uh, went into Wales? Well, I predicted a Scotland win, mm-hmm. and it, and it. It wasn't just a fact of me just saying that because I was looking for controversy. I genuinely thought the way that Scotland have played, even parts of the France game where they actually lost, that I didn't think Wales would be able to replicate the intensity that they they showed against England. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of teams, Scotland is probably seen as a lesser lesser game for them. Um, And I thought they were fantastic. I thought Scotland's performances, not just the the three games in the Six Nations gone by, or the two especially against Ireland and Wales, but even before that. You've seen it coming, haven't you? Yeah, it's been building. And the Glasgow form as well in Europe. Um, If they could get Edinburgh to to match (laughs) that, then they'd have even more depth. But tell you what really impressed me was the accuracy with which Scotland did most things. You know, the clearing out was very precise. They got men off the ball. The players who fired in didn't waste, you know, their opportunities. That created good ball, quick ball. And, of course, Scotland have now got backs who are able to score tries. And although they didn't create a plethora of chances, the ones... I mean, the first pass, the delayed loop pass from Stuart Hogg was just, just beautiful. And then just a quick hands... 
for the second try again it looked really simple because he did it properly and he did it well yeah. and you when you can summon the intensity and the accuracy that they did and then convert your chances you're always going to be dangerous and I'm not sure Wales purposefully underestimated Scotland but as you say they, they just couldn't replicate the intensity apart from about a 15 minute period at the beginning of the second half when Scotland actually stood firm and I thought that that as much as anything you know helped win the game quite apart from the fact that they did take the chances but they stopped Wales scoring yeah. when Wales had a relatively cogent period of play because the rest of the time Scotland were, were on top. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to talk about with that. I think every time now Scotland get the ball in the opposition 22, they look like they're going to score. Mm. Against Ireland was exactly the same and I've never... Ne- I, mean, I played for Scotland for 10 years. I think I was <laughs> I actually beat Wales <laughs> 10 years ago, one of, the, one of my only big wins. But look, this is the first Scotland team I've seen in the modern era that actually looks dangerous. I think you mentioned Stuart Hogg there. Finn Russell was mesmeric yesterday. Yes, he was very good, yeah. Tim Visser came in. Um, well, of the two, Visser yeah, and George and, North, you'd yeah. say, well, if you didn't know who they were, you'd say, well, one does look like a Lions prospect. And, you know, George North got sort of lost, really. Yeah, I, I thought Tim Visser completely outplayed him. And what I was most impressed with yesterday with Scotland was Greg Laidlaw being injured, captain, was a huge loss. But I thought tactically Scotland played really well because... George North notoriously is poor under the high ball. Mm-hmm. And so Scotland notoriously just run. But yesterday, um, on Saturday, you saw the amount of high balls going up both on him and, you know, quite arrogantly maybe putting on Lee, Lee Halfpenny, who struggled under the high ball as well. But I thought Tim Visser outplayed North. I thought Seymour was fantastic. Well, I mean, a kicking game is only as good as a chasing game. Exactly. And uh, they got that right as well. And for a team that doesn't necessarily, say, say for example, Ireland, which we'll come on to, who have developed this over the years. We haven't seen that from Scotland really as a tactic for any length of time, and yet when they were called upon to do it, they got it right. Yeah, exactly, and, and that's the thing. So you just see that they're currently, um, they're constantly, I mean, developing their game. Mm. So it isn't just, you know, it's gone to the stage now where you can go with a simple tactic of just running the ball and running, running teams off their feet. Especially in the Six Nations, it's impossible to do that. So the variation, what they've shown, is credit to you know, the coaching team, which is going to be changing after the Six Nations. But a lot of, I mean, it is, but you know, a lot of the work that uh, Gregor Townsend has done with Glasgow, is he, there set, so they're not going to lose that. Of course. The backbone of the Scotland team is the Glasgow team, and it's, you know, it's no coincidence that Glasgow are doing extremely well, and the majority of them players mm. now play for Scotland, so you know, there, there is a massive crossover there that there genuinely is. I mean, you're in the front five, you know how important that is, you know how difficult it is as well, and it's fair to say that Scotland have creaked a little bit around the scrum, um, but they've managed to just get enough, uh, not necessarily parity, but not being really beaten down, and the lineup's been functioning okay, so they've got the platform, and as you say, you, you must have spent 10 years thinking, God, we're going to have to walk the ball over the line <laughs> to score tries, but it, th- this is the thing, actually, about, about kicking, and this is one of the reasons why coping with Greg Laidlaw's you know, absence, because he's a fantastic kicker, was very impressive, because... If you keep going into the opposition half and you're rewarded by a penalty and they kick it and you kick it, every time you think, right, if we just do something really well, we'll get rewarded. And conversely, if you don't, you're thinking it's going to be a long afternoon. And I just, let's go on to the Wales aspect of this. You know, when you issue kickable penalties and they don't, you don't score, not only is that 
no three points, but it's a psychological thing. The defence thinks we've, we've managed. So next time we can manage as well. If you constantly just keep getting points on there, which Saris do better than any team in the, in the Premiership, you know, you are given the psychological Philip every time you get into the half. And also you have the thing where defenders think, actually, I won't just reach in for that one. You know, near the 10 metre line. I won't slow it down because I'll probably get pinged and they'll kick it. So it becomes easier all round. And I mean, what did you think of, bearing in mind they'd not taken penalties against England, what do you think of the decisions not to go for goal? Well, there was a little bit of confusion around that, weren't you? We've yeah. seen the stuff that's come out today where Win Jones wanted to take the, the three and then they ended up going to the corner. But I think that that shows you maybe a little bit of the arrogance and the respect that they have for Scotland. Whether, if that was New Zealand, would they have taken the three points? 100%. Yes, yes. 100%. I think that potentially that's where at the stage where it's going to change for Scotland now. Teams will start taking the three points because we're a very competitive team. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it comes down to. They maybe had the arrogance and they thought, right, let's take them to the cleaners. And, and like we saw, it didn't happen. Well, I mean, you look, you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, this is something we've... And actually, I had to go and look this up because I didn't know it offhand and normally do, but... And it seems quite anomalous, actually. But the law says when the kicker indicates that he wants to kick a goal, then the intention is sealed and you can't change your mind. Yeah. doesn't say the captain. But I wanted to say, well, actually, if you're the captain and you say this and you get overruled by a kicker, <laughs> then you've got to say who's in charge. I mean, who's running Who's running this? Because, you know, bigger, they were kickable. Um, and surely it's not his decision, is it? I don't think so. I think as the captain, and you probably have a couple of leaders on there, but as the captain makes the final decision, you know, Brad yeah. Barrett or Saracens will, will, will say to me, do we have them in the mall? Can we take them over? And I'll give him a, a yes or no. And then he'll make the decision yeah. off the back of that. So it is a strange one. And I'm with you. You know, if, I, if I've if i given a penalty away, which was a few <laughs> in my day, you're hoping that they take the points. Yeah. Um, and then you see them, you know, kick to the corner. Um, and sometimes you do light up. Um but yeah, it is a strange one, isn't it? Because Wynne Jones being touted for the Lions captain captaincy, yep. a couple of big decisions off the back of that. You know, I'm not here to, you know, bag what what he's trying to do. But unfortunately, he he's the captain and he's. But with all, I tell you what, with these decisions, there is outcome bias. It's as simple as this. If it works, you're a hero. If it doesn't, you're going to get it. Exactly. And that, and that's the way it goes. And it hasn't gone their way. Let's move on to uh, to Ireland. How impressive were they? Yeah, I think Ireland are a very, very good team, especially off the back of losing that first up game against Scotland. They've showed their class. They've showed that they're hungry again. The power in which they play with, obviously Sexton being back. It's Look, it's going to go. Well, we say it's going to go. Ireland could take it all the way. No, the, they will, the, I'm yeah. sure, well, look, the Wales have got the last opportunity, really, haven't they, to make yeah. the mark. And their players in a Lions year, this is really the last opportunity to make a significant mark because if they... If they don't against Ireland, a lot of the preconceived... Well, I know it was a bit of a joke from some of the Welsh fans. It will be Wales plus a few others. Yeah. You know, I think over the last few games, a lot of the possibles have probably gone, you know, to, to real outsiders. And you're now getting some of the probables starting to be, you know, selectors must be wavering with them. And against... If they don't do it against Ireland, then you know, the composition which will, will be very different. Now... What is especially about Ireland is impressive. I know what I think is impressive. What do you think is impressive about them? Stander. <laughs> um, well, Stander, I know Brian has carriers. Are, yeah, uh, exactly. Unbelievable carriers. But I think, like you said, they've got the complete game. So they've got guys like... People talk about Conor Murray being this 
world class player he is. You know, from from a current player in the game and watching him and having played against Munster a few times in the last couple of seasons, you need a world class nine, and you need a class ten. And having Sexton back is huge. What we've said, you know, take away the Scotland game, the uh, the first game of the championship, they're just always looking control. They look like they know what they're doing. They look like they're well dr- drilled under Smith, and. It, it it was initially O'Connell retires, O'Driscoll retires. Where are they going? Yeah, and we got Ring Rose now, who is a very significant prospect, isn't he? Who I'd never heard of before. And you the know, back three are, you know, the back three are good. Yeah. Um, so you're the, actually that's that's precisely it's the flexibility that they got, which is yeah. what England is trying to get, to which Scotland are, are nearing as well, and actually which Wales, for for whatever protestations that they are trying to change their game, and Warren Ball's a bit of a. A strange term, but you know, I do. What the 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 move that they scored against England when um, Lee Williams went under the post was one of the few moves I've seen that had any artifice or you know deception about it. The rest of the time, they've been very direct, as they always were. They're not going round the corner to the far touchline all the time, but it is still unreconstructed. One, you know, very straightforward bang, and. The finding that defences can now cope with that, and and it, and it takes time to develop the flexibility to play in the way you need to at any given opportunity. What's in front of you, and they said, "What if they don't start soon, then your know, next three or four years could be quite difficult for them." Exactly, Wales seem to be, unfortunately, from a spectator looking in, looking in on the way down. You talked about the power plays that they've had. Falatau was obviously a huge player for them. He struggled with injury this year. But yeah, they're, they're, they are becoming very predictable. And mm-hmm. now, you know, Wales in the past have played that physical, physical game. Everyone's up to that level now, including Scotland that we saw at the weekend, even including the Italians. And what it comes down to then is what else have they got? What else is there in their armoury? It's gone in the days of give the ball to George North, he'll beat four defenders, he'll run over a couple and, and, and that's him. There's a lot more tactics involved along with the power and there's a lot of question marks over Howley. I don't know. I, I'm not in the camp, but you can see their attacking isn't flowing as mm. well. Would Gatlin have an influence on that? I, I am a little bit unsure. I don't know whether he would. I think it comes down to quality of the players um, as well as them just being predictable and probably thinking that what they've done in the past is enough to move forward. They, they, they might do what they're doing better, um, but it still wouldn't be you know, the development into those areas which we said, and you, you mentioned the Italians, which is uh, a very poor hook to go into the, <laughs> the game, which I've uh, just witnessed, and it was an extraordinary game. I mean, Saracens were, as far as I'm aware, one of the first teams to use this tactic from kickoffs and lineouts where you don't commit, so there's no actual, uh, you know, no offside line. You can go walk around the side, you can just be where you want. And today, Italy did that, as you said and pointed out quite rightly, was mainly on England's exit strategies, but then they started to use it in the rest of the game because it was very successful. And it took England... Well, actually, England never solved it in the, really fully, but it took them a whole half to have any clue to the extent to which... I don't know whether it was clear um, you know, to people at home or listening on the radio. Roman Poit had to give six explanations, and they were all very precise as to what was a rook and what wasn't. And at one point, Dylan Hartley said, how can we make it into a rook? He said, well, you can't because you're not an opposition player... And it requires an opposition player to commit over the ball and be in contact. And tacklers don't count unless they get to the feet and then play the ball. And I just thought to myself, <laughs> why don't players who are professionals know this? It, what, I mean, I, I think you, you may well know. I think the, Sar- the Saracens players seem to be switched on 
as anybody concerning the laws. But that, that's not excusable, is it? Not no. to know the laws. No, especially, it's slightly embarrassing for Hartley and Haskell, I think, were the ones that were caught on on the ref communication mic that, that was broadcasted out, um, unfortunately for them. But look, you know, Saracens, we, we've had a little bit of that, especially on the exit rooks, because we've played such a structured game, probably similar to England, to be fair, in that sense of of guys leaving the breakdown, coming round and not coming in with the one metre and making that indecision. I would have thought after seeing it two or three times, then someone in that pack would have come up with a solution, like you say, which they didn't. But Well, the yeah. sol- actually, the solutions that they tried intermittently which worked and these are the solutions anyway to that is one the ball carrier if he lays the ball really early and the ball can be whipped away all right there's no offside line but they've not had chance to do the structured sort of coming round and standing in the way that um they did because it's too quick or two once people have gone to ground when you drive then you only drive it in twos and threes so that when you make the contact People come immediately in, it's a mall where there is an offside line, and by the way, they can't take it down without giving a penalty way. But you can't do much else, or you can pick and drive straight through the middle. But, though, I mean, look, those are easily identified when you're watching from a sideline. How easy is it to do that when you're on the field? A lot of what goes on in the field is what you've practised in training. My question is, is, was it spoken about? All I heard about in the lead-up to the game was that England were going to absolutely smash them. It's going to be a cricket score. So the arrogance of Eddie Jones saying that in the lead-up to the game was that that's all I heard. Had they prepped prep themselves for um, st- st- stuff stuff that he plays? Well, probably not, because I don't think anyone's ever done this. No. I, I tell you what, I'll be interested <laughs> to see whether other teams copy it. Because it does cause problems, undoubtedly causes problems, but there are solutions. It's the first time I've seen uh, any side commit to it so doggedly. Yeah, and they uh, they carried on doing it because it worked. I mean, it's quite simple. Um, but and, and people were saying, I've heard, seen a f- few things on social media. People say this is not the way to play the game. And like, well, look, you, they don't have any, look, the, the Italian team are trying to win games, and they're entitled to do anything, especially if it's within the law as well, which this was. And it's not their fault if England can't solve it. That's not my opinion. It's all kicking off now as we <laughs> speak on so, <laughs> yeah. via social yeah. media, and I agree. They got absolutely smashed last week. They, they've gone into that game doing everything and any, anything to, to put England off the game. Yeah. That's exactly what they've done. You've got to think, in the, if you're in the Italian camp, and whether I don't know whether Parise and the rest of the team, I'm, I'm sure Conor O'Shea reads the media in the build-up to that. Well, I know Conor does, because I heard him on, on a radio show last week, about Eddie Jones saying, we're going to smash them. We're going to take them to the cleaners. You're going to come up with everything and anything. I think that's credit to them. To come no, up with, I agree. A, with an astute plan and come up with a... Is it a spectacle? No. Would would Italy win the game, throwing the ball around and it being a spectacle? No. Probably not. So, you know. The, I think the only thing you can say um, for England, well, possibly not the only thing, it might be a bit harsh, but to England's credit, it did show, actually, when they get cogent passages of play and they get quick ball, they will score points and will score tries. So, in the end, they put six over, which had they been scored in a different way in a different game, people might have said, actually, well, that's OK, six tries, bonus point win and so on. Had Owen Farrell kicked the goals, it would have been over 50. So they've, they've got that still. And I think, I'm, I'm sure Scotland won't do this, but that, Scotland won't take that game as representative of what England can do. But they have to be aware that they've come from uh, positions in all their games where, you know, been rocking a bit, they've kept people out, and then when they've had the chance, they've scored, and that is a priceless thing. 
it takes time to develop that killer instinct. So, you know, it's still got that. Um, do you, uh, how do you, well, actually, tell you what, we'll ask some questions. Yeah. Uh, and then because we've got time to discuss all the other things with people. Um, 20 unanswered points from Lawrence Turner. Uh, in the second half, how important was the Scottish Rook in sealing the win? Well, Breakdown, basically. Well, yeah, well, it, was, it was huge in the first half. And a little bit in the second half, Tipperick and Warburton were simply world-class. You know, they're two of the best players probably in world rugby over ball. And anyone who watched the game would have seen that it was it was really frustrating for Scotland. I think losing John Hardy early on was it was a big loss. But if you saw the difference that Hamish Watson, when he came on, the physicality, not in just which he, he does in the carry for he's a small man. He's probably the, smaller than Neil Back. Um, the physicality that he showed, but the physicality at the breakdown and his body height to clean... Warburton and Tipperick off the ball made a huge difference. Because had they lost, um, there was a number of extra, um, uh, Strauss. Strauss. They lost Strauss, haven't they? Yeah. And he was magnificent, I thought, uh, you know, in the game. You know, uh, even against France. Yeah, yeah absolutely. France. I thought he was he amazing. An enormous amount of work. And I just wondered whether that would be. But the thing, the fact that Scotland coped with that just shows now that for the first time in quite a while, their depth goes, you know, goes a reasonable amount. Exactly. So losing Strauss, Ryan Wilson played eight. He was fantastic yesterday at running the ball back. John Barkley was made captain at six, who is a dog, an old school dog at the breakdown, yep. slowing ball down. Uh, but like you said, 20 answer points, it came down to the breakdown in the second half. And as I say, the back row for Scotland were immense. I think the fact that Scotland gone by have lost so many games in that second half in the last yep. 10 minutes, in the last 30 seconds of a game. So, if, if, you know, to turn around the second half in, 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 in how they did. It uh, just shows how far they've come. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions. Let's uh, let's discuss England a little bit further. Um, the one one of the fears I have is not that they didn't manage to solve the problems that the Italians caused by the the tactic of not committing and not creating rooks was that. A lot of the things they did in the first 15 minutes were just sloppy. Penalties given away, you know, inaccuracy in and around the breakdown, in the passing and so on. And by now, when you're in the third game of the Six Nations, those actually should have gone, by and large. Unless you're under inordinate pressure, which England were under a bit of pressure, but nothing that they couldn't or shouldn't have anticipated. Which England um, are we seeing? Do you, can you tell or not? Is it, I think it's coming similar to what I, I, I touched on earlier on in the show. Were they prepared for this game as if they were going to go and play New Zealand? Mentally, did they go into the game in the same state? Clearly not, mm-hmm. because you t- t- spoke about them in inaccuracies um, that they showed early in the game. Forget the breakdown, everything like that. It's like mm-hmm. you said, the kick-in, the passing, the simple, the basics going into the game is where the question marks came over in, in mentally how they were coming into the game. And that, for me... Probably is a worry. I think that's where Eddie Jones, you know, he would speak about the breakdown. That stuff will be dealt with, and you know, there'll be some comical stuff coming out out about that. I'm sure, but it'll be the the basics and mm-hmm. probably the mental state that they went into that game. Because there's no real, I mean, there's no reason for them, apart from as potentially, as you say, arrogance. Um, I don't think any player believes that when they go on the field. It's actually when you look back at the game and you think, did we do this right? Did we get that bit of preparation right? that you maybe identify areas in which that could have been better, actually. That could be more specific. Um, but they've got Scotland as a challenge next, and they should know what's coming. 
Uh, it will be a very, very competitive game. So there's no reason why they shouldn't step up to the mark you know, psychologically and, and in terms of their approach to the game. Where do you think that game will be won and lost? Technically, I mm. think that the team that spends the longest amount of time in the opposition 22 okay. will win the game. And simply I'm saying that because both teams, like you mentioned before with England, can score tries now. And I think that that's what it's going to come down to. Every time Scotland get into the 22, they score and vice versa with England. So it's going to be who can manage that middle third. I think the intensity of the game is going to be up there with the biggest, most intensity we've seen in any game this, this championship. In a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's still a very simple game. You know, first phase ball, good, solid, delivered when necessary, when, when wanted, taking the ball over the gain line, getting back as quick as you can, as many times as you need to, until you identify a mismatch or a space and then doing something about it. And also, there are games which are balanced and against teams which, you know, are proper competitors... You're going to have a period ascendancy, and so are they. You've just got to make sure that you score when you have yours, and they score as few, or as little as, as, as you can make them do, when they have theirs. And it's going to be interesting, because like you said, Scotland have now got the ability to take the chances. England have shown they can take theirs. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a very, very uh, interesting game. And I... Even though England are at home, I, I couldn't predict with the performances thus far uh, an England victory, which I would have done before the start of the Six Nations. What do you, how do you see it? I'm confident Scotland can go there. How many times, well, not in my 10-year career, so it must have been before that, <laughs> would you say Scotland are going for the Triple Crown? And th- this is the thing, so a confident Scotland team, we've never seen one. Well, I've never seen one anyway, mm. in the, especially in the professional era. So it's like we said, I think that it's going to be a close game either way. I, I genuinely don't think England are going to smash Scotland and vice versa. I think it's going to come down to them small pieces. The, the team who take their chances, discipline, can Finn Russell under intense pressure, um, kick goals like he did uh, yesterday against Wales. And you know we're going to see a bounce back from England as well. Mm. That's probably the, going to be the hard thing for Scotland is the intensity is going to be right up there because they know if they're going to be slightly off that this isn't like an Italian team. Scotland, Scotland will make them pay. Well, I think uh, we've got Rupert Moon on the line now. Rupert, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Um, I don't know if you've heard the chat um, about about Wales tactically. Uh, with what validity are we making these points? I think uh, wise words. Uh, you know, Wales are in, unfortunately in this transitional period. Uh, Warren Gatland, you know, nine years in situ, uh, had a successful winning brand of rugby from his early years of um, kick and chase to the second section of tackle everything and work on uh, star players doing what you need to do. And then this kind of, OK, we're going to try and evolve to the next stage. You know, the, the, the glimmers of hope were there in the in some ways in the autumn series, uh, but we are uh, a team with players that are senior players that are just on that cusp of past their sell-by date, and then we we haven't really bloodied enough young players yet either, so it's going to be an uncomfortable 12, 18 months I think while the players get the experience. Unfortunately, they're going to have to do it <laughs> in, the, in Fiji and Tonga <laughs> over in the summer, which is a tough old place. And then a, a really typical autumn series, but you only get it by doing it. Wales have got uh, Ireland, they're at home, so 
chance of redemption. How confident, or are you confident, or what will sway the game? Do you think they can beat Ireland? Uh, well, I think I think the the only hope is the familiarity of having play you play against the Irish on a regular basis in the uh, obviously in the Pro 12. Um, we'll be battered and bruised. I think Rob's going to have to make some some changes and just give a, a few players. Uh, an opportunity, you know. It, what disappointed me, I suppose, is the uh, a couple of players just um, off the edge, but also Alan Wynn not commanding like I thought he was going to do, and keeping the composure and the kind of the big arms out when we needed it most in the second half, when it kind of just went awry. We kind of just went off singularly, and that's unlike uh, Wales. You know, normally they're a very composed team, and that. Kick for the corner, uh, which which was I think was overrun either by Dan Bigger or Lee Arpany or both uh, when we needed that, and just players making mistakes that normally wouldn't. You know, you never see Lee Arpany drop a ball, you know, miss a kick in front of the stick sort of thing. You never see that. Um, you know, our offloads were just not quite right there, but it just showed uh, you know a lacking a bit of composure chasing it. Hey Rupert, it's uh, Jim Hamilton here. How are you, mate? Jim, good. Um, I just wanted to ask, you mentioned Rob Howley then and the amount of, I say pressure, uh, all the coaches look under pressure, especially when you see him in the box during the games, but in Wales, is he under much scrutiny, especially you know going into a Lions tour where he's expected to take that attack forward? Look, yeah, I, as you say, every coach is under the pump. Don't forget when Gatlin went away last time, he won the Six Nations. So, uh, you know, he, he's, a, he's a guy that had the most sexual, successful autumn series that Wales has ever had, uh, just gone. Um, yes, uh, we didn't play great, but let's give credit to your boys because Scotland have been, uh, you know, talking about it and showing <laughs> glimmers of it. And actually, it was unfortunate they actually hit their ground running uh, against Wales because they've been, as you say, they were going to do it at some point, and they really did it in style. And a number of key players put a number of keepers <laughs> pressures on. Finn Russell with a smile on his face, getting 19 points, and then the back row doing what they do. With a you know with a Scarlet Barkley leading by example, I just I understand the record. You can look at the stats and so on. But yeah. what what would concern me if I was a Wales fan is what I'm not seeing through this transition. Because if it is a transition, it started slowly, uh, and I don't see. I, um, we mentioned this in the opening, the. Uh, Liam Williams try, which carved England open because it set so many problems for defenders, they just couldn't solve them. When I see Wales moving the ball, and they've got a reasonable amount of ball throughout this tournament, you know they haven't been you know totally dominated by anybody, and yet that was the one thing that stands out, principally because it's the only time I can remember, you know when there've been multiple uh, dummy runners, there've been players you know posing different challenges, and well, I just wonder when they're going to start doing this. Uh, me too, and I think it's a it's a difficult one, and it. But it, you know, I think Sam Davis has earned his right uh, to get some uh, miles on the clock on the international field. I think you know he's a fluid footballer that will bring players into the game and cause a a threat from ten. You know, Dan's been a great servant, but I just think that Sam deserves that opportunity. That will bring some more continuity. I think the we we haven't seen, as you said, the 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 endeavour. The, the attitude to try and be a bit more exploratory. We had that one try, as you said, against England that showed a little bit of something, but we need to uh, be a bit more creative. You know, you look at the Italians in the opposite way today. They were creative <clears throat> and thought process of how we're going to 
disrupt an England team in the same way. Wales now need to be creative, think it, use it, uh, and come up with some innovation and creativity. And there's pl- there are plenty of those players, um, and it starts with that having those senior players back. Charteris will make a big difference against our, uh, Ireland. I think Falatau getting involved and, and obviously maybe starting and using Moriarty in a in a sixth position. I think it would be more of an opportunity, but they have to sort of throw shackles off and have a go. And I think that's when Wales are good, when they're up against it and people think they can't, and they do. I was going to ask as well, and I've got to be careful what I say here, because <laughs> um, we might be playing Northampton soon, he might run over me like a train like he has done before. But George North's form... Especially yesterday, under the high ball, I've seen before that he's quite vulnerable, but running into touch, is he, is he low on confidence? I think we just got to get him in the game. I used to have a, a winger in the sky, it's called Salesi Fina, he's a really large Tongan, and we, I used to point at the number 10, telling him that this guy's coming, and he's coming <laughs> off the back of the scrum, and I used to laugh, and very, very excited by using a big juggernaut like that. Same as George, I think either he's got to go looking for it, or they've got to find ways to get him in, to run at people, run to the side of people, just get him in the game. You know, that did, you know, it was great hands for that Scottish try. Um, should he have stayed out? Yeah, he should. Should he have had confidence in the inside man? Yeah, he should. Um, uh, should he got lifted up and put into touch? No, he shouldn't. Um, but I just think he's got to go searching for the ball. He's a kid. <laughs> he's got a lot of caps, yeah. both of the British lines. Still a young kid. What is he, 23? And so he's got to have some uncomfortable experiences, but he's actually got to roll up his sleeves and go for it. And I think he is that type of bloke that will go searching for the ball because he'll reflect on it and go, I can't wait for it, I'm going to go get it. We couldn't answer this and you have got a better chance of, of doing so because you're closer mm. to you know, the environment. How much of this is down to Warren Gatlin's absence? Uh, look, I think before he left, I think it was, the, it was already starting. It was already problems were, uh, were there, the, the evolution... He's had a, a, a very successful recipe for a very long time. And, but as with anything, it, doesn't, it can't last forever because there aren't many coaches who've got enough players and enough squad depth to be able to do that. And the All Blacks, obviously, are one of those that have that evolutionary way of developing their game and very successful with it. So Warren's only got what the players he's got, and that evolution needed to happen a little bit sooner. It's lovely to be in hindsight. But I think that blooding of young talent is just one of those uncomfortable periods you've got to go through, and it'll take a couple of seasons, and uh, maybe we should have blooded two or three others that will help us. But now we've just got, as I say, an uncomfortable couple of years. As a final question, if that does happen and the results go wrong, mm. which is, is quite likely, actually, will the Welsh public wear it? We've worn it for many years. We've been spoiled by the success. You know, I keep saying that we're a nation of three million and we shouldn't really achieve what we have. When uh, Steve Hansen started that initial evolution of giving the likes of Geffen Jenkins and others their opportunity and we went through this whole, we've got a, it's only about performance, not winning. The Welsh public got infuriated, but it was an investment in the future which stood us in good stead. And then we took it on from there. Now, the same thing has got to happen in that we've been spoiled by success, which is fabulous. We have high expectations, but now we've just got to get players playing international rugby, getting more caps, and there's still high numbers of caps on the field. Don't get me wrong, we're not going to wipe out the whole squad here. We just need three or four and 
three or four that can come off the bench as well that just will help that transition because it only matters the World Cup uh, right now and I, I think we've just got to start now and going to Fiji and Tonga ain't pleasant but it's that's where it starts <laughs> Rupert um, insightful as always thank you very much Stop, man. thanks Rupert before the tournament how many well Finn Russell maybe um, Stuart Hogg probably mm. going to be certainly in the squad how many other players do you think have forced themselves not necessarily into definite starters for tests but certainly on the plane I wouldn't have said Finn Russell before I, I would have said he's been carrying a lot of injuries the concussion stuff actually rolling into the Six Nations so for him to be playing so well I think he's definitely put himself in contention but I think for me everyone's talking about Johnny Gray I think Richie Gray has upped his game tenfold this championship maybe because it's a Lions year I don't know uh, and the second row is going to be hotly contested we'll, you know, we might touch on that everyone's talking about that for me there's a couple of outsiders Fraser Brown at hooker I think you look at his work rate around the field in terms of um, his breakdown work his physicality in tackling and carrying and there's always been a question mark over his throwing. I don't know statistically where Scotland are in terms of um, winning ball, but they've got a decent line out. I think the one area will be the scrum. Um, Xander Fagerson, I think if the scrum would have gone better, there would have been a chance for him. There still might be an opportunity depending on how Dan Cole goes mm-hmm. in the next couple of games. But I think Tommy Seymour is a, is a dead cert for me. Um, the basic skills you've seen him under the high ball you've seen him what he can do he can score tries I think he's a certainty along with Stuart Hogg so I'm not going to say that it's going to be a Scotland Lions team like it has been a Wales Lions team but 100% you're going to see a lot more than there has been well well, certainly more than you might have done I think now we can speak to uh, the younger Hastings Scott Hastings Scott are you there? (laughs) Hi Brian Hello mate um you must be very, very chuffed. And uh, you know, Jim's got a smile on his face. <laughs> you can't see it, but he's as big as, as whatever. Um, how much more can the Scotland team bring? I think they're gaining a confidence, Brian. I think I said right from the offset that, that Scotland will win their, their home games and that, uh, that anything on the road is an absolute bonus. And it, it, isn't it fantastic that we're talking about a cut a cup and a triple crown and uh, what a what a great uh, opportunity for Scotland to go down to Twickenham and uh, and take on the best and, and, and get that record because 1983 was the last time that a Scotland team won at Twickenham there um, and I really feel as though that confidence can you know it, it's, it's such a great part of the game isn't it if you've got winning momentum into the game and the players as Jim was saying the likes of Stuart Hogg, the likes of Tommy Seymour, the Graeber brothers, the Grey brothers, sorry. Um, it, it's feeding off each other, and you can see a unity within the squad that Vern Cotter has brought, and, and the improvement under him has been quite substantial. Yeah, I think, Scott, as well, we were just saying, how happy do the boys look when they're in attack? Finn Russell, Stuart Hogg, they're constantly smiling, they're loving playing. And like, like you mentioned, and like I know as well, under Vern Cotter, they just seem at any given point whether they're attacking, whether they're defending, whether they're exiting, whether they're under pressure, they just look like they always know what they're doing. Do you agree? Yeah, see, we've seen it in previous seasons, haven't they? There has been an improvement right from the rugby, the rugby World Cup a couple of years ago, and 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 you know where they had glorious failures and losing games in the last few minutes, they're now a tough team to beat. Do what? Give you give your opinion on this, both of you. Um, everyone's searching for this magical consistency, 
you know, the, the will to win, the way to win, uh, and so on. And yet, might it not just be as simple as this? You just need to do it and keep doing it. I know it's a very trite thing to say, but the confidence it brings and so on, uh, no magic formula. It's just a question of putting the, you know, the successive wins on the board and that perpetuates, you know, a, a development of a winning mentality. Absolutely. We've seen that from England. We've seen that from Ireland. They are winning teams. Now Scotland are getting a feel of that winning momentum and it's doing uh, you know, a huge amount for their confidence. Now, let's be frank, for the first 40 minutes, Scotland were getting squeezed out of the game because Wales were denying the ball. But Scotland's defence was good. They had a little bit of luck in there. But when they showed that they could dominate and take the game to, to Wales, that was when they won it in that crucial second half and scored 20 unanswered points. Yeah, I think as well, Scott, I think it's fair to say it's Scotland's time now. We were just speaking about Wales, the fact that they are in slight transition. Maybe Ireland to a degree as well with losing the likes of O'Driscoll, O'Connell, such iconic players. But I think you'll agree with with me and what we're saying. 10 years of, of hurt, if you like. I say 10 years of hurt because my 10-year career, uh, that's what it was like. It was a hurtful 10 years because we didn't have much success and it wasn't through lack of trying. But the backbone of this team has come through a successful under-20 Scotland campaign back in the World Cup and the Six Nations Championship. It's Scotland's time now, Scott. Hey, the next two or three years for sure. It's certainly, it's certainly looking bright. And, and Brian, one answer to your question is Scotland are playing rugby. They're playing an attacking style of rugby. The moves are coming off. They're scoring tries. And when you play attack-minded rugby, then that is great in terms of your attitude as you're building through the week of an international and going out there onto a pitch. And I must say, the atmosphere was electric in Murrayfield yesterday towards the end of the game. And normally, the stands would empty. And to a man, both Welsh and, uh, and Scottish supporters stayed because that was a great test match. It was. I played at Murrayfield and um, in good and bad times. How significant... I mean, everyone says that their home fans, their fans are, are tremendous, etc., etc. Um, but I've also been, as a disinterested party, you know, at Scotland Games, and sometimes it's been flat. Oh, it's been funeral. It's been awful, Brian. And that's because the Scotland team and the Scotland supporters got used to losing games. And, and there was an air of despondency. Yesterday, there was hope, there was energy. They got the team, they were singing. And Jim, you know, you've had your victories in a Scotland jersey. When the Scotland fans do get behind, they, they can be very good. But at times, they can be mournful. So, um, once you've got... This is a... This is part of a, not a cyclical thing, but a, you know, an aggregate thing where if you play well and the fans get enthused, then you play better because they get enthused and they get more enthused. Um, do you think they can beat England at, at, at Twickenham? I, I think undoubtedly so. I, I think Vern Cotter will set up a game plan um, where the players will buy into it. And he's a deep thinker of the game, Vern Cotter. And you'll yes. remember, Brian, that uh, Sir Ian McGeehan was the coach yes. when I played. He, played, he coached you uh, on Lions tours. And what, what I think Vern Cotter, in much the same mould as McGeehan does, is he empowers the players to think about what's been 
put in front of them. And I think Scotland have been clever this championship. They've been innovative in this championship. And if they can go in with that mindset, then that's really important. I think England could really, really challenge Scotland in the scrum. So Scotland are going to have to come up with a game plan that not only lasts for 80 minutes, but undoubtedly you've got to meet your tackles and take your chances. Because when you play at Twickenham HQ there and you create a chance, you need to take it because you won't get many against England. But when you do, if they take it, then they can win the game, but it'll be a cracking test match. And actually now, and this is becoming increasingly the case, you've got to have a game plan that takes into account what you've got on the bench. What they can do, what they can't do, what they will do, the time, the timing of the substitutions and so on. Scotland have got much more depth than I can remember, well, than ever, actually. Um, yeah, I, do they I, have... Do they have... That. And as you saw in the match against France... Because the injuries came at sort of different times within the game, um, those impact players or finishers, as Eddie Jones likes to call them, but those impact players and those squad players who are so much part of the team and the preparation, they couldn't make the impact that they had probably planned for because they were being brought in at different times of the game. But France um, certainly presented a huge physical challenge. Now, under the analysis, Ireland then came out and outplayed France. And you thought that France might outplay Ireland, but no, it was the other way around because the game plan and the strategies are set. These teams are analysed. And if you can stick to your game plan and pinpoint the weaknesses in the attack and defensive strategies of each team, then if you're confident and you execute, then the wins will come. Are you coming down? Will you be down at Twickenham? Oh, I certainly am. I'm working with Jim Hamilton uh, <laughs> oh, live right. on ITV. So <laughs> really looking Excellent. forward to getting my teeth into yeah. uh, into that game. And obviously, you know, hoping for a, a dry ball because the weather conditions were good uh, at Murrayfield, and hopefully Twickenham will be on the same uh, conditions. Well, we'll have a chat if we meet. Uh, good to speak to you again, Scott. Cheers, Scott. The best. Cheers, Jim. See you down there. Cheers, mate. T- two broad, broad Scottish accents will be. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be well. It, it will be a great game, actually. Oh, that, we don't know if rugby-wise will be a great game, but it should be a great occasion. There's a lot at stake, yeah. and it's a Lions year. Uh, bearing in mind it's a Lions year, the Irish players um, have always contributed hugely to the Lions' cause, and uh, Paul Wallace, former Irish and Lions prop, I think now is here. Well, he can tell us how many he thinks will make the team, and let's go through uh, Ireland's victory. Good evening, Paul. Good evening, Brian. How are you? I'm all right, mate. Now, unusually, I thought that the French physical challenge may overwhelm, uh, not overwhelm, but might be a little bit too much for the Irish. And in the end, actually, I thought France were probably a little bit slicker, but it was the Irish physical carrying, the intensity down, the breakdown that I thought won for the game. What did you expect and what did you see? I thought the Irish side were much more exact. Uh, you, you mentioned the breakdown. I think their technique there was just that much better. The discipline was much better as well. And uh, it has to be said, we, we got the rub of the green, maybe a few more decisions with, with Nigel Owens. But um, by and large, I thought Ireland were a, a, a well-oiled machine compared to, to France that gave away a lot of... Uh, 
needless penalties in the second half in particular. You know, half time it was still very much game on. But at the end of the day, you know, Ireland dominated strongly in possession and territory and uh, the half back control and Conor Murray in particular, his kicking was was bang on. There's some days where it can be a little bit fickle, but he, I thought he was right on the money. And of course, Johnny Sexton, you know, he brought his running game, those wraparound plays, which created a lot of danger in the French defence. And uh, I, I think they'll be very happy, especially the, the Irish defence. Not not leaking a try was obviously a, a, a big thing because the Irish defence has been leaking a lot of tries over the last couple of seasons. Hey, Paul, it's uh, Jim Hamilton here. How are you? Hi, Jim, I'm good. Yeah. You, you, you must be a happy man. A very happy man. <laughs> very happy man. Uh, what, what do you think, actually, about Scotland's fault? Because Ireland, I say slipped up. Uh, I don't want to say slipped up from a Scottish perspective. I thought it played really well. But was that the kickstart to, to, to Ireland Six Nations that they needed? It was probably unexpected initially. Everyone was talking about the, the final game. They were jumping five games, four, four or five games in front for the final game. But was that the, the kickstart Ireland needed, do you think, that initial game? You know, when you start off like that, and look, we all we, we all knew before the Six Nations how much Scottish rugby had come on, and they're they're were due to make a breakthrough. But I still think uh, there was a lot of confidence in the Irish side, a lot of expectation to go over there and win. They started so slowly. Their defensive organisation, in particular, I thought was quite poor. But the fact that they got back into a position to close out a game, and with the experience they had. Uh, and, and their sort of you know habitual success against uh, Scotland as well, not to not to close out that game. I think that was a huge knock of confidence. Couldn't read too much into the Italian game because uh, you know Italy didn't um, really turn up on the day, and Ireland didn't have to do too much to really to to, to win well. Um, unlike England today, who certainly had to to, to work hard in that second half. But uh, this French game. That, that was a real tester. And I thought Ireland really stood up. I think having their halfbacks back on form. There was a lot of other players as well who, who didn't stand up in the Six Nations uh, till now. Guys like Devin Toner, you know, he's more dominant again in the, in the line-out. Uh, Sean O'Brien had that extra few games. Uh, Henshaw, but all, all these players are coming back and seeing that sort of form we saw in November. I was going to say as well, um, I wanted to ask, it's still on, on subject really, but CJ Sanders has been immense immense for Ireland what are your thoughts on these project players I know with Scotland and here's me sitting here with an English accent but played for 10 years for Scotland that someone like this where the academy systems and, and the club cl- club teams in Ireland are so successful that a guy leapfrogs them comes in yet he, and he's become almost an iconic figure in the team yeah, and of course, Jared Payne as well, who's out injured at the moment, is yeah. another project player. Uh, personally, I think three years is way, way too short a period in this professional era. I think five years is a minimum. Um, and when you look at South Africa and how they're, they're doing, and you look at the likes of Scott Spedding as well, playing for, for France, yeah, but they're leaking so many players. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, you, you have teams that are going to the islands and Fiji and Samoa, you know, to, to target players. They're going to Craven Week in South Africa. And, and uh, you know, it, it's in a professional era, it's money talks, and uh, guys will go there for, for a good career. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can't knock a guy for doing that. You can't knock an international side for, for using every advantage they can have but uh, for me I don't think it's a it's a fair system uh, not in the professional era I played with a lot of players uh, uh, who came over here in the amateur days settled down played some club rugby but but they, they it wasn't the same scale as it is today where you have professional outfits going out and recruiting these are guys that came over that wanted to play uh, for the national side and uh, they've all 
most of them all stay down afterwards and I think that's the same with other countries as well so I, I do think there's a place there if you're, if you have a grandmother or, or whatever it might be then of course I think you, you should be eligible uh, otherwise that will get rid of a half of our English based players um, <laughs> with, with the Irish heritage over there but uh, when it comes to someone who's got no connection with a country and you come in and within three years you're going to be playing you know, with a Bundiaki uh, the Connick Centre coming uh, eligible as well in, uh, in November as well so um, yeah, it's a system that Ireland are using to, to the best of uh, their ability. But for me, I think ethically it's wrong to, to do it for three years, maybe five years, and, and, and see how it goes from there. Well, it's very difficult to comment on this when you're English because everyone says, which is right, well, you have lots of players. So it's not a real problem for you. You don't have to struggle to get these players. I agree with you that five years should be the minimum because it cuts out a World Cup. You know, and if you want to commit properly for that period and you miss out on one World Cup, then it just shows that you're at least, even by residence, committed to, to that. The real, I tell you what, the real problem I have is this, is that, and this always happens when you allow these, these things to occur and don't stop them, it's the age at which players are now being asked to, you know, to, to do these things. You're getting people going younger and younger and younger, um, and a lot of them won't make it because you can't tell at that early age. And they were just thrown out, you know, off you go, sorry it didn't work, um, and left to pick up the pieces. It's a different matter when you're a, you know, you're a seasoned club player, you've, you've developed emotionally and so on, and you can still have problems then, but when you're starting to take school, you know, school kids and so on, and when you're starting, as they have done in France, that to me, you can do serious harm when you do that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Brian. And when you look at CJ Stander, I think I think there's a player now who could be playing for the Springboks. He, he was coming through, uh, you know, underage captain for the, the underage South African sides, and uh, he was just told he's too small, he's not going to make it. Well, I tell you, if he was down in South Africa now playing that sort of rugby, he'd certainly be in the Springbok squad. Um, so if he looks back, and I'm sure he's he's very happy with his move and uh, has fitted in and feels that he is, you know, as Irish as the as the next player next to him in the standing up for national anthems but uh, when he does look back you sort of start saying well I could have been a springbok which is what he would have grown up and, and wanted to be you know uh, at that stage so I, I think you're correct in, in that regard when you when you move over here as you say maybe 20 21 years of age uh, it's a lot different than looking back when you're 30 and uh, you know missing up the opportunity to play for your native and your parents country Wales next in the Millennium Stadium well, the Welsh public will be expecting a reaction, whatever that means. Do you think that they have enough to, to, to take this Irish side? Because I have my doubts. Uh, I, 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 going to Wales, uh, we, we haven't... Uh we haven't done particularly well over the last decade. You know, it's a very experienced side. It, it, it is ageing. It's a lines year. There's a lot of individual battles. You know, when you think of four years ago, it, it was uh, a lot of Wales and Irish guys were the frontline guys for test positions. Um, I think there's uh, still a bit of a fight there, albeit you've got to say that there's so many English players have now really come into that fold, and the Scottish for that matter. Uh, I think when we were looking at uh, you know our Celtic cousins playing, we were going, who do we want to win? They say if Wales win, they'll probably be a bit softer at home. Uh, or do you really want to get inside their heads and uh, the confidence down? Uh, so it, it's going to be. T I think the Wales are going to really come out, come out firing uh, early on. But uh, you know, if Ireland stick with them, 
I think there was a, a, a lack of confidence there, as we saw against England, where they looked like they were dominant, they looked like they were in control, yet they just didn't ha- seem to have that belief, which England had, which I thought was the difference between the sides. Uh, I think Ireland have that. I think the, the French game would have done uh, wonders for their, for their confidence uh, to close out a, a tight game. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be a, a, a big differential in score between Ireland and Wales. So I, I think it does suit Ireland. And I just think, um, you know, various combinations are all beginning to start clicking. And, yeah, I, I think the scrum is one area. I, you know, I've been very impressed with Furlong, how he's come on and coped. Mm-hmm. We've got two very good loose heads. I think that's an area we can be dominant in. Um, as I said, the line-out, and I think our back row uh, is uh, is playing outstandingly well as a unit. You know, he slip is right back up there. Sean O'Brien sitting back up there, and, and the man you mentioned there, CJ Stander. As a combination, I think the three are are, are excellent. Sometimes you don't even pick one out. It's, it's all three, and, and they work in tandem uh, so well. I just think we might have it up front, um, albeit I'd be very wary of that Welsh centre partnership. Well, um, we won't have to... I think, I think a lot of neutrals are hoping that, um, you know, Ireland wins so that the challenge that England have, I mean, with all respect to uh, Scotland, <laughs> you know, the final the final day might be a big clash. So it might be that, you know, it, it's Scotland and Ireland going for it. Thanks very much. Thank you. See you later. Good evening. Bye now. We've got Nigel Owens coming up. and he, A lot of questions on rooks and uh, tackles, I think. But I just wanted to mention, we don't have a correspondent this week, but I do want to mention the Women's Six Nations, which we always do. Ireland women 13, France 10, England 29, Italy 15, and Scotland 15, Wales 14. Um, that leaves the table with England and Ireland, uh, both played three, won three on 14 points at the moment. So that will, uh, the denouement to that one will be exciting as well. I'm sure that Nigel Owens will have, well, I tell you what, He's going to get them whether he likes it or not. The question's about that. But he'll be coming up next. Nigel, are you there? Ryan, how Hello. are you? Um, it took England uh, quite a long time to work out what was and wasn't a rook or a tackle. Now, Roman Poit was very patient today and he did explain about six times what it was. Can you concisely tell us the difference between and when a tackle becomes a rook. Yes, um, this tactic was done by the Chiefs in Super Rugby about two years ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been done quite recently by a few teams. Uh, the Dragons did it last week on a couple of occasions when I ref them out in, in Connaught, so it's it's nothing new. It's something we referees have discussed of how we're going to referee it. Uh, and made aware of, you know, it is a tactic that is within the laws of the game, whether we agree with it or whether you like it or not, but it's within the laws of the game. So what the team basically does, for you to have a, a ruck formed, you need one player on his feet in physical contact, one from each side at least or more, in physical contact over the ball on the floor. The ruck is formed. Once the ruck is formed... It's irrelevant then, because of the dynamics nations of the ruck, it's irrelevant if those players are driven off their feet. So now you have everybody on the floor, nobody on their feet. But because a ruck was formed before, it is still a ruck, and a ruck doesn't end until the ball leaves a ruck. So although you may be looking at some situations, and say, well, there's nobody on their feet, so why is it a ruck? Because a ruck was formed before. So one player from each side or more on their feet, 
over the ball a ruck is formed. The offside line in the ruck is the highmost foot of the last player in the ruck, whatever team he's on, and it goes right across the field from touchline to touchline. The difference then here in the tackle, if you have a tackle and a ruck is not formed, so basically what tends to happen, where sometimes it, it happens because of the speed of the game and it's not intentional, but obviously when it becomes a ploy by a team, it's an intentional tactic, and that is when a tackle is made, so your attacking team, the team who has possession of the ball, their guys come in now to anticipate, to protect that ball or to form a ruck or to drive people off the ball. But the opposition then, they don't commit to make contact over that ball, so you just have a tackle. And when you just have a tackle, the offside line for the tackle is, is just a metre around the tackle area. So if you imagine the size of a coffee table, it's just around the ball or the players on the ground, just a metre around it is the offside. So anybody who is outside that meter is not offside because they will only be coming offside if a player comes in from the wrong side within that meter of the ball. Well, the tackle area only ends then when the ball is passed away from it or the ball leaves that meter area then it becomes open play and the offside line of the tackle area then finishes. Am I right in saying this? It doesn't matter how many players you uh, take to tackle um, the player. Um, it's whether or not players who are not involved in the tackle join subsequently and you have two players over the ball. And uh, the second point is this. If you have two players over the ball and the other side who haven't got the ball consciously withdraw from the rook, it's still a rook. Yes. So if you have, if you made contact, you've got one player from each side at least or more. Once contact is made, a, a, a player then cannot pull out of that uh, ruck. Well, he can pull out, but it's still a ruck. Mm -hmm. So the offside line is across the field. And the, the contact of a ruck is it's, it's not touching. So if, if I come in, what you will find some teams will try and do to try and form a ruck is when they come in, they will try and grab an opposition player. Their hands touching an opposition player does not constitute enough contact to, to make a ruck. You have to be in physical contact, so shoulder and shoulder or a full arm contact or half an arm bind around a player over the ball to form a ruck. So me reaching over and just touching a defending player who's stepping back from that is not enough to form a ruck because that's a tactic then that the attacking team will try and do. Well, let's try and make contact so we negate that and we form a ruck and prevent them from not forming a ruck. Um, hi, Nigel. It's Jim Hamilton here. Hiya, Jim. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So what you're telling me is that legally now I can be offside, so I'm not going to get <laughs> I'm not going to get pinged anymore. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Jim, I've, I've been telling you things for the last ten years. <laughs> what I tell you now, I'm not sure. Oh, mate, I knew I knew the rules were going to come round to the fact that I can keep going for another five years now off the back of this. <laughs> you, 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 you. <laughs> Nigel, we I, I, we made this point earlier on. Are you surprised that current international players and professional players? don't seem to know the minutiae of the laws. I am surprised, to be honest, Brian, because I've been in with the Welsh squad two or three times this year, 
going through different things with them, refereeing some contact sessions and explaining a couple of things to them. And I know, I think Wayne Barnes was in with England last week and I think JP Doyle and a few of the English referees, they are in with England as well. Now, whether they've actually discussed this thing, I'd be very surprised if they haven't, but I, I haven't got the answer for that. I don't, I don't know. I haven't spoken to, 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 to Wayne or, or, or JP, JP or anybody, anybody since this. But I would be very surprised if, if players don't know this. Now, obviously... If I believe, I haven't seen the game today, but I believe James Askell asked the question, what, what is a ruck? Or like, I'm not sure if what he, whatever he said, I'm not sure. But obviously, if he asked that question, then obviously he doesn't know what it is. But I don't know what exactly what well, he asked. But well, I, I am surprised that people don't, players don't know, because we as referees do tend to win with our national squads. And part of our job, if you like, as an employer that WIU was a professional referee, same as Wayne Barnes with, with, with the RFU, we do go in and discuss stuff like this. Now, whether this particular thing has been discussed with England, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm surprised that they don't know it then. Well, at one point, the question was asked, well, what can we do to turn it into a rook? I said, well, you can't do anything because you're not a position player. I mean, I just, I, just, I, 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 I was, I, I don't know. It's easy from the touchline, but I was astonished that uh, Roman Poit had to give six explanations to this. Anyway, let's let's um, let's move on, you know, from that. This is a point that's come up um, in several points. The 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 dead in 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 goal, and in fact, actually in touch, with the ball still moving or not moving, player steps out, gets the ball, it's brought back for a scrum. What is the law relating to that? The ball has to be moving. That's the first thing. And this the same you can. If you think think of the touching goal now and the dead ball line, including the try line, including the 22. So the same principle applies and including into touch as well anywhere in the field. So it's the same principle here. There are different outcomes depending on, on where it is, for example. So if the ball is moving and the ball has to be still moving and the player then has one foot um, on the try line or one foot in the dead ball line, or one foot in touching goal, or one foot in touch, or one foot in the 22-meter line. If the ball is still moving, if he picks that ball up, he is deemed not to have carried that ball back, as long as the ball is moving. If the ball stops prior to any of these lines and becomes stationary, and he then picks it up, then he is responsible for taking it back. So that would be a difference then, for example, the question you asked, ball goes into touching goal or the dead ball line. If the ball is moving, the player is standing with one foot on the line in the dead, dead ball area. He picks it up. It'll be an option to scrum back with 22. If the ball becomes stationary and he then picks it up, then it's a drop of 22. Now, one thing that has caught, I, caught me out in one game uh, in Australia, um, South Africa, actually, back in September in the Rugby Championship, um, which I should have got right. And we're talking about players that know a lot of the game. I'm a referee of 75 internationals. Got this wrong. If the ball is moving and the player has his foot in touch in goal and puts his hand on the ball to make it dead, then that is a drop of 22. There is no option. He has to pick the ball up to get the option of a scrum back. Mm-hmm. It happened with a game with me where the player put his hand on the ball rather than picked it up. And I gave him the option of scrum back or drop a 22 where it should have been just a drop a 22. Well, we all make mistakes, Nigel. Um, uh, you fewer than most. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good to speak to you again. Thank you. 
All the best. Cheers. All the best, Jim. Cheers, Nigel. Take Thanks, care. Mate. Out, right, it's time to switch codes to the uh, game of rugby league. Um, being a Halifax boy, uh, it's one that I grew up with. It's one that I played. Well, don't tell anyone because it was in the era when you weren't supposed to play, but um, I did. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm pleased that we can speak to Kevin Brown, the current Warrington Wolves standoff. Uh, good evening, Kevin. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Now, then, um, you had a great win in the World Club Challenge, but... Um, I know it's only two games, um, and you probably won't stay there, but bottom of the league with no wins. Yeah, how do you feel? How do you explain that? Yeah, disappointed. Um, there's there's plenty of stuff we need to work on, um, especially after such a good win. You know, last week we we really wanted to back that up. Um, you know, against what I will say is a, a very good Castleford side, and um, unfortunately there was an eight minute sort of period in the game where they they hit us with three tries and. Um, yeah, we played, you know, pretty well, you know, in periods, but we didn't put it together like we did the the previous week. So yeah, disappointing. Toronto um, beat Siddle. Now Siddle is a well, it's not really a suburb because it's not really a big enough town, but it's a part of Halifax, which is let's put it this way is uh, <laughs> is not the most um, salubrious of parts of town, and yet Siddle as a rugby league club have always done really well. But the significant thing is the Canadian Rugby League side, uh, first ever game, um, and they go to Siddle and win. How was that expected? How how do you think that would have turned out? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a good story for for both teams. Obviously, Siddle were massive underdogs. They're a, um, you know they're not professional. They, they all have jobs in the in the week, and and they go there, and that's a bit of fun for them. And for Toronto, it's it's a new venture. It's it's similar to the. You know how the Catalan Dragons started. Everyone a little bit sceptical to see logistically how it would work, and and hopefully, yeah, that's the start of you know some some good wins for them because it'd be great for our sport if if we could have a real good franchise over in Canada. When you look at the table, I mean, as I say, I stress again, you know, we haven't got the uh, the, the full thing there, but um, the usual suspects are, are uh, you know are around. But uh, Lee Centurions, twenty four sixteen against St Helens now. I know Paul Cook said that they'd be getting there or thereabouts and was, and they were just unhappy about certain little things that hadn't gone right. And I thought, actually, you know what, this might be a bit of coach's flannel, but that result, um, albeit at home, a significant one. How, you know, what do you think, Lee, how well do you think they'll do this year? Well, I, th- I think they've started off pretty well, obviously. Um, coming from the Championship, it's always a a tough step up but you know the previous week I watched them against uh, the Leeds Rhinos and you know it was just a pass of the ball right at the end of that game where they, they should have really won that game too so they're really competing and, and to beat a good Saints side uh, you know is no easy feat so they beat them 24-16 and, and they raced into an 18-0 lead in that game and, and sort of blew Saints away and and that's what Lee sort of bring. They've got this attacking flair. Um, they've got some fantastic coaches in in Dukes, Kieran Patel and, and Paul Cook. Um, and yeah, they're, they're going to be a real dangerous side. And I, I think they're going to, you know, especially at home where they, where they beat Saints at the weekend, it's going to be a, a tough place for everyone to go this year. Well, Huddersfield took a long time to actually register a win, or certainly, you know, a few wins uh, last year. And yet uh, they're doing OK this time. Five tries against Wakefield Trinity. Um, is there a reason for this start that's been better than last year that you can see? Yeah, well, obviously, they've got a new coach in um, Rick Stone and, you know, he's, he's come from um, Australia, he used to be at the Newcastle Knights and, 
Yeah, we, we um, the Warrington Club, we played them in um, in the pre-season and there was a noticeable difference in how they played. Last year, it was it was very much, um, they'd like to get you in an arm wrestle and, and try and, and make you quit, really, and, and just be there longer than you. But this time, the, the, this year, they're throwing the ball around a lot more. Um, like you say, scoring a few a few more tries this year. So, uh, yeah, they'll be happy with the start. They, they were in, you know, in a close loss last week against Salford. But, yeah, this is this, this another win against Wakefield will, will do the confidence good. And, yeah, the, the subtle change in, um, I think it's down to the coach, I think. Um, it was a it was a thrilling game, the witness uh, Wigan game, and you know Wigan came out on top, and probably deserved to be five five tries. Um, but I, I, what what else was going on about it's on it's off, you know the yeah. witness coach Dennis Betts said the bizarre situation came this morning not knowing what was going on, it was put on eleven o'clock, and uh, you know that surely can't be right for teams. You need a a concise period of preparation, and if it suddenly I know it's both the same. For say both teams, it's not ideal, is it? I mean, what's your no, opinion? I, and, it, and it's not ideal for the fans as well. I think obviously Wigan have been part of part of history the week before, and you know there was there were some skeptics saying that the, the Wigan players had parted hard for you know the beginning of the week, you know celebrating being the World Cup champions, um, and obviously they finished that game on the Sunday, so um, they had to back that back that up on a Friday, and and yeah, there was obviously the the storm that came through. Um, but yeah, it was a very strange one as the game got called off without the consultation of, um, you know, Witness or the RFL. So I think there was, you know, uproar from from Witness because they fancied taking on Wigan after this short turnaround, and and Witness obviously had this, um, you know, the 4G field, so they had, you know, great facilities and and there was no waterlog or any pitch damage there. So the game got called off um, and then got put back on probably 12 hours later. And like you say, it's not ideal for for the players and, and probably both sets and um, yeah Witness will be disappointed in this because they, they were 26-12 they were up um, you know with 20 minutes left and Sean O'Loughlin came back on the field and apparently he was he was inspirational and you know they, they got the win 28-26 so that's what champion sides do but Witness will feel um, you know they let one get away there uh, Talking to champions uh, sides for quite a long time Leeds Rhinos were all well not all conquering but they, they certainly won their fair share of trophies and last year well, must have been very disappointing for them and their fans but this year you know seems a little better 20 points to 14 over the Red Devils Salford is it too soon to say that they've they're back um, yeah I think it's too soon to say they're back but there's a you know obviously a progression from last year there was it was very competitive early on last year but you know they were losing the close games and now we mentioned they played Lee uh, last week at, at Lee's ground, and and you know they just uh, managed to, to come away from from that game with the two points, and and they've done the same this week against Salford. So um, noticeably in in the uh, press conference after the game that the coach uh, Ian Watson for Salford was was complaining about a foul pass being a you know the the last try for Leeds, and you know that's what separated the side. So yeah, a bit of luck going Leeds' way at the minute, um, but definitely an improvement from where they were last year. And the Catalan Dragons, um, I, I must admit, I was surprised they got an away win uh, against Hull. But we've been here so often with Catalan, you know, can they win away and they win a couple and you think, actually, this time they might actually do it. What is it going to take for them, um, you know, to finally fulfil the promise of investment? Yeah, well, um, investment, I think that's what they've done this year. They've invested in, uh, 
you know, an inspirational leader in Greg Berg. They bought, they bought him from the uh, Cronulla Sharks in Australia. He's, um, you know, many, many tested uh, international. Uh, he's, he's been a fantastic player for a, a decade now. And, and he showed up in the first two games. He's, he's been inspirational and, and led him from the front. He's been tough. And, um, yeah, that's what, you know, surprisingly, they don't normally, you know, bring that form um, away from Perpignan. Um, and going to Hull FC in your first game is, is probably something that you, <laughs> you 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 don't really want on the calendar. So so they went there and you know they, they turn up for the books. They, they got a man simbin, uh, but yeah, they're two from two now and they won sixteen fourteen. So um, if they can keep this form up, they're going to be big contenders this year. Well, Kerry, um, I'm sure your league position will change out of all recognition. It's bound Hopefully. to. <laughs> so, yeah. So thank you very much, and we'll speak to you again later. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Cheers, Brian. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions, supporting the team behind the team. Well, we now go to the, uh, well, really, literally the other side of the world, um, probably as far away from from Great Britain as you can get, actually, New Zealand. Um, Some of us won't be going down there, I don't think, with the Lions, some will, but waiting for whoever comes will be the New Zealand broadcaster and friend of the... uh, Sure, Nigel Yeldon. Good evening, Nigel. Good morning, probably, for you. It is, it is morning, but good evening to you too, gentlemen. Uh, I'm with uh, Jim Hamilton, the uh, former Scotland look. Um, we were looking at the Lions' prospects. It's a big topic over here. And I'm trying to be explaining to people from these shores um, the position of Lions rugby within New Zealand's rugby history. Can you give me um, a better explanation, you know, one that he's, you know, from a Kiwi? Well, I, I, I think it is just so steeped in history. When you, you look back at uh, some of the great moments uh, of the game in, in our country, uh, the Lions are very much at the forefront of it. Um, I think one of the, the standout tours, and, and a lot of the, the older people, when they look back at, at rugby, they talk about the great tours that came to New Zealand in particular, involving um, South African teams, but one that, that stands out and was one of the great Test Rugby series was the series that the British and Irish Lions won in 1970. Mm-hmm. And that was an absolutely phenomenal team that came down here and took on an all-black team that at the time had, had won 17 in a row from 1965 through to 1969, but lost the first Test of that 1970 series against the British and Irish Lions. And then... I think back to what was one of my first rugby memories, and that was watching the first test of the 1977 series on a colour television in my grandfather's um, lounge in Palmerston North in New Zealand. So, and, and it just keeps flowing on through, and there are always great games, there are incidents, there are performances, and so from a New Zealand point of view, it, is, it comes with a lot of expectation, even beyond the expectation that now comes with, for my mind, the unnecessary hype around the British and Irish Lions. They don't need to be hyped. They are steeped in so much lore. I don't think they need the, the, the over-the-top publications or, or um, um, uh, uh, profiling that they get at the moment. I think they do it of their own accord. Mm-hmm. Well, look, let's go to Super Rugby. I, I asked... Um... Alex Brune, uh, who's the Australian uh, rugby journalist, who you probably know, whether there was any chance that the 
New Zealand sides were not going to dominate this competition. He, well, hand on heart, he couldn't say he couldn't say there was, but he had hopes for a couple of the uh, of the Australian sides. Now, from your point of view, from a New Zealand point of view, is it expected simply to be, you know, same as as ever or you, as usual? Well, look, we're expecting the New Zealand teams to be, you know, competitive and, and to the forefront as, as they always have been. Me personally, but because of the way this competition works, I actually think it's for a South African side to lose, and I think it's for the, the Lions in particular. The, 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 the team, which I thought was just brilliant last year, made it through to the final. They've got such a sweet draw where they don't play any New Zealand teams because of the way the conference system works. But the New Zealand teams, we expect them to compete um, as they have done throughout Super Rugby since its inception in 1996. So, you know, we saw... I guess some interesting performances over the course of the weekend, Brian yeah. and Jim. We saw a, a, a blue side perform better, I think, than some might have expected in Melbourne. We saw a great New Zealand derby between the Chiefs and the Highlanders with a bit of a surprise result considering the Chiefs haven't been able to beat the Highlanders in recent times, being in Hamilton or in Dunedin. Uh, then we saw the Crusaders struggle a little bit and then there were the Hurricanes playing the Sunwolves, which was a game that's getting... A lot of attention, but for all the wrong reasons in our part of the world. Hey, Nigel. A great speech. It's Jim Hamilton here. Lovely to speak to you, sir. It's just interesting to speak to you because I've played in the Premiership. Well, I've played in, in Europe for the last 14 years, but I've always had a keen eye on watching the Super 15 or Super 12, what it was back in the day. Is is this side of the world rugby well followed? So do they watch the Premiership? Do they watch the Six Nations? Do, do the players, the, the, the media, yourself... Yeah, well, the, the Six Nations has is, is always got a, a pretty good following. Obviously, because of what's happening in June, there is a little bit more keener interest, mm, yeah. I guess, from the casual rugby observer as to the Six Nations this year because they're trying to get a gauge on maybe some of the players that they'll be able to go along and see when the Lions hit, hits our shores in, in June. From the, the Premiership point of view and some of that European club competition, because in New Zealand the, that sort of rugby, up until now has actually been played on the Rugby Channel, which is a subscriber TV channel run by Sky, so it's an extra cost in order to do so. However, now on a Saturday morning in New Zealand, um, we're, we're getting some of the Premiership games, and we're able to watch those as well. So the interest has been more so from people, well, just keeping an eye on maybe a, a former player that they like who's now plying his trade up in Europe and up in the United Kingdom. But now there's an opportunity for... Uh, some Saturday morning, so it must be the Friday Friday night games that, that you play over there. We're getting to see some of that on a Saturday morning, which is a nice viewing time slot after you get back from uh, doing kids' sport first thing in the morning. So there's a little bit more interest now, but in the Six Nations, there's always been interest, but that interest is heightened most definitely with uh, the Lions coming down this year. Um, we were taught, you, we went through, we ran through the uh, results. The Blues have always, a bit like Cardiff actually. Have always interested me because, you know, of where they're positioned, you know, the fact that they probably ought to have done better. Um, does this season look as though they may actually fulfil that? Well, I mean, that, that was a really positive start for them, Brian. I mean, um, to, to score over 50 points, first time they've done that in a very long time. Melbourne is a side, the, the side they beat. The, the Rebels had started off last year really good and then just faded towards the end. And I think there were some high hopes um, in the Rebels for, for a good campaign. But, 
you know, they just really got blown out of the water by, by the Blues. And so the, the, the issue for Tana Umanga's men, though, Brian, it's not actually playing Australian and South African teams. Their record last year, they only lost to one side from outside of New Zealand, and that was, that was the Lions who went on to, to make it to the final. They had a, dr- a draw against the Reds. They beat all the other South African and Australian opposition they came up against. Their issue is with the New Zealand teams. Last year, they had one win in a New Zealand derby. They lost the other five, and they finished last in the conference, even though they were, I'm pretty sure they were in the top half of the overall table. Um, such was the strength of the New Zealand conference. So their big challenge, we'll get a better gauge of the Blues this Friday night. Um, that'll be, uh, what's that, Sunday, uh, Saturday morning, I think it is, um, uh, English time, when they take on the Chiefs in Hamilton. That's going to give us a really good gauge as to where this Blues team is at. But the initial signs are that they are going to be improved on what we saw last year. And last year was a significant improvement on what we'd seen in the previous two years. Hey, Nigel, I was going to ask as well about the um, the coaching situation in terms of the amount of uh, or Kiwi influence coaches we're now seeing in the Premiership. So Aaron Major, for example, coming to Leicester, must have been a huge loss for the Crusaders to lose him and Todd Blackadder at Bath. Is this becoming, is this, are the opportunities in New Zealand becoming less and less? Do they f- feel that they want to branch out in terms of their knowledge and a different code of r- style of rugby? Why do you think that a lot of the New Zealanders are coming over now to Europe? Well, I think what, what, what it is, Jim, is it is it's opportunity. I mean, there are, there are six big jobs in New Zealand rugby. There's coaching the All Blacks, and that's been locked up now between two men for a very, very long time. And then there's the Super Rugby coaching job, so there's five of those. The provincial jobs, yeah they're, yeah, they're nice, but when you make the comparison, your earning capability is very much lessened. So unless you get the opportunity to, to step up into one of those Super Rugby roles, and they don't come around all the time. I mean, Todd Blackadder was at the Crusaders for a very long time before he has finally stepped away. Dave Rennie has been at the Chiefs for four years. He's now stepping away. We've seen uh, Jamie Joseph uh, depart. Um, Tony Brown has taken the head role coach in an interim level before he departs for Japan as well. So they are looking for opportunities. And the opportunities in New Zealand rugby are, are very limited. If you feel as though you've done your time at Provincial, you want to either become an assistant or you want the big head coaching job in, in, in uh, Super Rugby. Now, if you don't do that, there are plenty of opportunities in clubs in Europe and in the United Kingdom and in Ireland. They are, they are looking for New Zealand coaches. We've seen it with Pat Lamb moving to Bristol, freed up an opening in Connacht. Who's going there? Well, Kieran Kane, who's currently an assistant coach at the Chiefs, is going to go over and do that job. Yeah. So, you know, the, the clubs up there are looking down at the New Zealand coaching talent. And when you look at um, the, the, the success that New Zealand coaches have had in your part of the world, gentlemen, you, you can understand why. They Again. have translated nicely. They have been able to obviously adapt and connect with their athletes, um, and that's always not an easy, easy thing to do sometimes from an outsider's point of view. So clearly they've seen the success, and the, the style of rugby intrigues them. The way they coach um, obviously is, is very attractive too. So um, it, for me, it, it, it's the fact that there is such limitation in New Zealand rugby for those coaching jobs. That's one of the reasons why the Northern Hemisphere is so attractive to a lot of these coaches. Nigel, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Anytime. Thanks, Nigel. Just before we uh, end, we've got the regular feature, which is called Lions Watch. Uh, QBE um, team behind the team uh, are very keen on this section, uh, and I've become increasingly keen because actually now 
we're getting to a time when we can actually make proper predictions about who might or might not. So just a couple of players, not ones that are nailed on, like Stuart Hogg, he's, he's nailed on, I don't, without <laughs> doubt now, but players who just might make it that you thought might not be well as well known. It's, it's been a really interesting championship because the standout players that we would have thought were going to go probably haven't uh, failed to excite how we thought they might. Uh, if you're asking for a few Scotland players, I, I did mention a couple earlier. I think Fraser Brown has got a huge opportunity at hooker. I think that that position's wide open, potentially with Dylan not playing as well as he would have liked and had the game time over the last few months. Uh, Tommy Seymour, uh, people are now starting to speak about him, but I had him penciled in I think that there's a good chance you could put a pen next to his name now um, especially Warren Gatlin seeing what he can do and I think you've got to look at guys like Hugh Jones in the centre it all depends in the style of game that they want to play do they want to play a power game do they want to play a loose game but I think that off the back of what we've seen the games and with Scotland doing so well you know and Ireland as which we would have thought it's opened things wide up no more to be said thank you very much End of the show. You've been great, actually. You've been fantastic. Thanks for having me, Brian. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. My thanks to my co-host, Jim Hamilton, for joining me in the studio this week and to our producer, Abby Patterson. Next week, uh, my co-host will be former Scotland and Lions fly half Craig Chalmers. Um, remember, you can get in contact with us throughout the week using the hashtag full contact and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a review thank you hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.